Welcome to the MI Hunting Podcast. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Derek Wangler, owner of Northern Whitetail Habitat and Hunting Solutions, as we review his hunting success from the last year and his approach to habitat improvement. All right, and again, welcome to MI Hunting Podcast. You know, this week's episode was really fun. Um, I had a really good conversation with Derek. He uh, he actually reached out to me uh, on social media, uh, saying that he liked the show and that you know he'd love to be able to the chat. And so, end up giving him a call. And you know, this young man is a, a wealth of knowledge when it comes to whitetail. You know, he lives and breathes. I think you know whitetail and whitetail hunting and everything that comes with it, and it shows. You know, he's been able to harvest some really good deer in the past few years and show some consistency with it which is no small feat so you know he shows that he's you know capable of being able to you know harvest true deer on you know more than one occasion so so when he goes into you know his approach on how he finds these deer and you know his approach to be able to hunt them and then we dive into a little bit about his business again that's northern whitetail habitat and hunting solutions you know he had worked um, as you'll hear, he's you know essentially his family's farm. He's been doing habitat work on his own for for quite a while, and he decided to take the, that next step and you know do it professionally. And then so we go into his you know mindset of what he focuses on for you know when he looks at a hunting property and what how he prioritizes things. Um, he does do take a little bit different approach than than I, what I've really heard before, where his priorities are a little bit different than what. It, you know what you'll typically expect so but you'll hear more about that um, towards the, the latter part of the episode uh, one thing i do want to make sure that i touch on is that it is the time frame for the application period for the spring turkey hunt so if you're wanting to get out and especially get into the earlier seasons for t- spring turkey then now is the time to get your application in so i just want to give that little you know, a little friendly reminder in that regard. And then with that, let's go ahead and jump into the episode. Oh, the main thing I do is I help run my family's dairy farm. And then on the side, I run a business called Northern Whitetail Habitat Funding Solutions. Okay. And that basically is, is where I come in and I help people get their property set up and come up with a property management plan. Right, right. Yeah, I thought I, I know I was going through some of your Facebook and whatnot, trying to just kind of see, you know, what you do and what you're all about. And when it looked like that's that you worked on some type of cattle farm, but I didn't know if it was for a business or like a company or a family farm or something like that. So that's cool that you worked the family farm there. So, but yeah, man. So yep. you started up your own, uh, basically hunting or wildlife habitat consultant business, huh? Yeah, that's kind of something I've been doing for a few years, just kind of around with a couple local guys, and I decided to kind of go legit with it and see what I could do with it. Yeah, how was it trying to start up a business in the midst of all the COVID stuff still? Um, It wasn't too bad, you know, like with COVID going in, people were wanting to spend money, so it wasn't too hard to fill up my schedule and honestly i'm like holy crap sometimes it can be a little overwhelming but it's definitely something i love doing so it's not so bad yeah so how long have you been you know doing like your own you know habitat management and stuff like that to kind of build up that experience to have the confidence to want to you know do it uh, professionally i guess um i've been doing it for pretty much as long as i can remember um i was like the first guy on our farm to start doing food plots and stuff and when i was 16 i went and bought a little four row corn planter and started planting food plots with that and clearing land with a skitter just doing stuff like that around our farm got me uh pretty much a lot of good experience there and then just being able to uh go to a lot of like we we have about i'd say we have about you know 12 1300 acres here and just being able to hunt a property of that size has just made it to where uh i can kind of walk a property and kind of see what the best areas are going to be because as you know like a bare property there's a lot more of them zones where it's not worth your time or there's a lot of zones where it's worth your time but it's such a big zone that you have to figure out how to get down and get close to them especially for bow hunting yeah yeah i know i mean that's that's i mean 
for my area, you know, we don't have parcels nearly that size what what you're talking about. So you know, the closest thing I can relate to is when you're hunting public land where, yeah, there's a lot of area where, you know, there's a lot of land there, but you can really pinpoint your focus to key areas and not even worry about the vast majority of the area. So I get that. Yep. And we got around me here, it's a lot of like uh, smaller 80 acre chunks and then some uh, bigger chunks where you get up there and it's like a square mile chunk that 600 plus acres. But we do have a lot of state land here. I've actually been pretty lucky. I've killed two really big bucks the last couple of years besides the buck this year. I was, was the first one, the first really big, big one that I've actually killed off of private land. Yeah, I was going to bring that up too, probably literally later. But yeah, you've killed some dandies there. But so, what area? You're out of what West West Branch area? Yep, I'm out of the town of West Branch, Ogemaw County, and probably like it's more towards the east side, but kind of central. What? wise a little bit north of central of uh, the lower peninsula of michigan gotcha yeah yeah because i saw it too that it looks like you take some trips over to pigeon river and whatnot and get some elk sheds and stuff like that so yep i actually have a dog that i spent a, this is his third season i've spent a few years training him to uh, find elk sheds and he's a lot better finding elk sheds than he is whitetail yeah and i'm actually i got trip plan i i'm actually setting up all my gear and stuff right now to actually go up there with him tomorrow morning and spend the day up there oh very nice because yeah he's i like the name too his name is scout yeah yeah and it looks like he's got some aussie in him but is he is he a mix at all or yep he's a uh, australian shepherd and bernice mountain dog cross bernice okay all right yeah because i knew it wasn't a pure aussie so i assumed there was some type of mix there but i couldn't tell what it was so well that's cool so um yeah so that's that's really cool i've got uh alaskan shepherd and i've considered trying to take him out shed hunting and whatnot but i haven't worked with him in in, in any regard so i'd have to do a lot of work with them to get him to that point but, but yeah that's cool yeah i will say that uh retrievers are a lot easier to train to uh, retrieve stuff and bring it back to you than an australian shepherd is yeah yep but uh well that's awesome man so yeah so yeah, so you reached out and I mean, I didn't know if you had any particular topic that you really wanted to discuss or just talk in general. So yeah, well, I'm pretty much open to whatever you want to talk about. If you want to talk about uh, public land hunting, uh, traditional hunting, yeah. uh, trying to find big bucks in Michigan or shed hunting and stuff. My main thing that I do is shed hunting. I'm, I'm way more into shed hunting than I am actual hunting, but I'm still just as big into hunt, like going out there with a bow rifle season's not something i really look forward to as much anymore as i used to when i was younger but you know it's still that traditional thing where you have to, you have to go out opening day no matter what but definitely archery has taken over my life compared to rifle season i, I kind of get to the point where i'm like oh man i got till november 14th and then pretty much the season's almost over and then the orange army comes in and either takes out a lot of your up-and-comers or takes out some of your target bucks and makes it a lot harder to get back on them in that december time frame i guess let's dive into the hunting then so do you do most of your hunting would you say on public land or do you do most of it on your private piece there um i'd say i'm at about 50 50 i didn't i pretty much spent my entire season chasing one deer he was on our private piece years before this is the first year i've spent almost all my time on private years before i would spend about you know that 50 percent of the time hunting public land because uh we're pretty lucky around here with some really big tracks of public land and some really good tracks of public land where, I mean, the last two years, uh, I've been able to kill some really awesome bucks off of public land. And it's definitely something I really love to do because there's a big difference in hunting the big forests and the big woods and stuff compared to hunting the edge of the farm fields and Creek bottoms. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. It's, I did probably, I actually, this year I'd probably did more on the public land side um, probably, probably mainly just because I was trying to give myself the primary goal of trying to get a, a buck on private land or not private land, public land, because I've yet to do that actually. So my goal was to try to get a two-year-old or better, and uh, it it really kicked my butt. I got close a couple times to a really nice buck, but then he ended up disappearing on me, and then and then I ended up uh, basically just kind of getting almost too busy for it until after after rifle season was over, and then. I did it a little bit during the late season, but really it, I kind of got hemmed up with how much time I had available to hunt, really. 
Yeah, and I kind of ran into that this year with uh, the buck I killed this year. I called Crab Claw. I hunted him so hard and focused on him so hard this year that I didn't even make it onto public land until late season. I did a little bit of public land hunting with the muzzleloader, but other than that, and I'm honestly kind of kicking myself, but at the same time, it still worked out. I was able to harvest him uh, November 13th, a couple days before the Orange Army hit the woods, but I was definitely starting to stress out a little bit there because uh, he was kind of a buck that was... He was pretty daylight a lot of times, but at the same time, he was kind of really hard to hunt because he daylight at the most randomest times, but he would daylight, you know, at least three or four times a week. But like a lot of the times it would be one o'clock in the afternoon, 1030, and it was just the craziest of times. And most of the time I'd be working and I'd be like, I can't, damn it, I can't get out there right now because it's the middle of the day and he's out there daylighting on camera and uh, there's nothing I can do about it but just sit there and look at pictures. Now with him... with his daylight movement, was he consistently in kind of the same area or was he, you know, covering basically the entire property? Um, he actually was pretty much limited down to, I would say probably about a hundred acre chunk that he was moving around in the lot. And during the first, like first couple weeks of bow season before I ended up having to take a trip out West and I wasn't able to hunt here until I got back he was pretty much daylighting almost every day but it was different trails at different locations and stuff he was pretty he was pretty much almost unpatternable but to the point where i knew he was coming from this specific area and this year we ended up getting a lot of east winds so that kind of like hurt my plans a lot because i was pretty much planning on trying to kill him that first week of october with a west wind but with all the east winds it was really hard to get into the close to him uh, where i was trying to get in on him Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I draw a pretty close parallel to the buck I was trying to catch up with out on the state land where like, yeah, he was like, I caught him daylight in an area where I wasn't expecting him. Cause he was actually, this was October 20th, I think when I first saw him and he was cutting through a uh, clear cut and it was probably like eight forty, So well within daylight um, for the morning. And that was the first time I saw him. The second time I saw him four days later, and it was rough. I mean, within 15 minutes of, of the time that I last saw him, but then he was coming from the other direction, and like where he where he was heading to and where he came from the two times, like there was no good, there wasn't any good cover or any good sign for me to pinpoint where he was going once he hit the the big woods. And then the other direction, it was just more clear cut until probably another 500, 600 yards. And like there was a good bedding area there and it looked like there was a buck bedding there, but uh, the areas I hunted that area, he was, he wasn't in, like he never showed up. So I could never really pinpoint where he was exactly going or where he was really coming from. Yeah, I definitely, I've ran into that a lot on uh, some public land around us here with the uh some more of like uh it would be probably about i guess it was two years ago now actually it was a buck that i had sheds from him the two previous like uh, it would be two sets of antlers before the year i killed him and he actually was kind of like a buck that we knew of but wasn't on the radar but at the same time we're like we kind of knew he was in there and we ended up i ended up going back in there and trying to hunt a different buck and he ended up moving into an area pushing him out but it was to the point where i was trying to like kind of catch up with him but at the same time it was he was in an area where it was really hard to get to him and just made it a lot more difficult but you know it's just the way sometimes those deer work out especially public land and i don't know if you found this or not i feel like you can get away with a little bit more on a uh, public land with like smell and stuff with deer than on uh, private land um, I think I would agree with that. Yeah, especially because, like, the bot I hunt is only 80 acres. So if they, if you bugger them up with scent, then they, it's really easy for them to evade you and not come onto the property. Whereas, in, like, on the public land side, like, yeah, you can, they can smell you, you'll bugger them up a little bit. But then a lot of times you can kind of readjust on them a little bit easier. So even if they kind of avoid one area or if they start, you know, getting spooked from from you in one area then you can always try to readjust them and then i'm sure there's probably more times where 
you know, they're getting bumped from people just in general uh, a little bit more frequently. So they, you know, kind of uh, recover from that a little bit quicker, I think, too. Yep, yep, definitely. That's that's what I've ran to a lot on here is, you know, you always got neighbors, especially around here, you'll get on like, for some reason around here, there's a lot of people that like to fence edge hunt. And I'm not gonna lie, I'm guilty of it too when I was younger and stuff, but you know, you can never control your neighbor's wind. And I've always had, private land is the spots where I've had uh, people get, come on and like the fence line and you still, they start hunting the fence line. They got, they're trying to hunt with their wind blowing onto your property. And you can actually, I've had spots completely shut down that were amazing the week before, but as soon as somebody starts sitting that fence line and the wind was blowing back onto the property and into where the deer were, I've had them completely destroy areas. And I've seen that on public land where you'll actually have a deer like the deer will catch the wind and i i watched the guy i was just i've only ever rifle hunted on public land once and honestly i'll probably never do it again i just wanted to see how bad it actually was i got set up well i i'm sitting there set up and i had a guy come up and set up within 150 yards of me that morning and his wind it was a northwest wind but we were on the southeast side of a clearing well in the middle of the clearing there was this big tree going up in the middle of it just one single douglas fir and eventually he climbed himself up there and got a little tree stand set up in there and when daylight came around there was actually deer kind of like you could tell where they would they were kind of walking across the opening a little bit and then all of a sudden they'd cut his wind and they would just kind of like they'd make a 90 degree turn and walk straight towards me and right in front of me and hit that like thicket edge and worked their way around until they got where they knew where he was and they could tell he couldn't see him anymore and they ended up coming back out and working the way where they were trying to go originally Yep, that's sometimes how i've had to try to set up where you know you scout an area and of course you find that you know someone else thought it was a good spot too there's, there's a tree stand there and yeah you almost have to take in consideration that you know if the if they're not hunting it properly then then sometimes yeah you can capitalize on you know those deer skirting around them or whatnot so yeah i've ran into that a couple different times because um, i don't know if you get much um, you know archery pressure on the public land that you're at but even where i'm at you know there are guys that eventually do get set up probably getting prepped for rifle season but then eventually they move in and you know kind of hunt that last couple weeks um, of archery before the rifle season starts and they transition into rifle at the same time yeah, I mean, you'll see that a little bit around here, probably not as much as you guys deal with over there, but I mean, most of the time when you're, there's a few guys that bow hunt, and then, I mean, it definitely picked up in the last couple of years of people hunting public land as stuff's definitely gotten way more popular, and uh, chasing deer on public land has become the, the next cool thing, but I mean, I'll see probably... Uh, it's only been the last couple of years I've actually even got people on my cameras on public land. I I don't see the hunting pressure in bow season as I do rifle season, but I know you're talking about like that last couple of weeks right before uh, rifle season when the guys are starting to set up their stands for rifle season. You definitely see a huge influx of uh, people in the woods and stirring deer up and around. And honestly, I've seen a lot of times where that can people be going back into a spot they thought was good and your big bucks bedded in there and you'll actually push that big buck out and make him have to move somewhere else. If you're there at the right time, that can make him have to move right in front of you or get set up in an area where you're already at. Yeah. Yeah. I've certainly heard of lots of guys that, you know, talk about having to work around hunting pressure and yeah, trying to capitalize on, you know, maybe some of the mistakes that other hunters might have, or just, you know, from that increased pressure of, you know, being able to adjust your setup knowing that those deer are getting moved around differently as well you know that's for sure let's go into a little bit more of because i'm curious about kind of like your tactics or your mindset when uh i guess primarily hunting on the public land side where um you know are you going in with like a mobile tree stand are you primarily ground hunting what's your approach really um i'm almost completely 100 percent mobile tree stand this year i did a little bit of saddle hunting and next year i'm 100 percent switching over to saddle hunting it is way more comfortable and i just love i'm way quicker at setting up a saddle than i am a tree stand especially you know just doing a climbing hunt and doing stuff like that but i do do a lot of ground hunting too because you know there is a lot of areas where sometimes you can't climb into a tree and 
actually be able to see where you want to shoot. So sometimes sitting on the ground is definitely the best option. But the kind of how I approach public land is uh, I do a lot of truck scouting by just driving around. There's always a lot of elf, alfalfa fields, and sometimes you can spot some on cornfields on the edges of them around the public land. And I do a lot of truck scouting and running uh, cameras and stuff. But the main thing I look for is do you always find these agricultural fields where a lot of deer will come into and I'll always use them as a starting point to run cameras. And I kind of just go off of like what time I think a deer is going to be up in his bed at time. And like, as you know, the bigger bucks are going to be showing up at that one right by the field at, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning. But then I kind of already know I, that makes it so I know they're there and I can go from there. I can, start running different cameras and run just cameras up different farther trails towards uh, where I think some deer could be bedding where I think a bigger buck could be bedding. Okay. Yeah. I was just going to yeah. ask you if you start out from that field edge and then you gradually start to work those cameras inward to try to narrow down that area, but it definitely sounds like that's the case. Yep. And for me, my approach is mostly focusing on like that first part of October because, you know, as the season rolls on and after them crops start to like, uh, alfalfa fields start to go into hibernation and corn starts coming off it makes it a lot harder for them deer to want to come to the field edges and especially pressure starts to pick up on the field edges that i try to target my bucks and try to have the if i have a buck targeted i try to you know i it's not always the case and but i usually try to kill them that first part of october the first two weeks because uh that's kind of how i focus my approach on moving them cameras into where i kind of have an area picked out where i think that deer's probably bedding and i just slowly work my way with cameras on these different trails and stuff and honestly i find out like you'll get like a, a big major trail and then all of a sudden you'll catch like a buck you'll sometimes catch a buck track moving off into a different section and then i'll start moving on to that trail and usually that's how i pick them up is on a you'll catch them on like a smaller trail coming into the big ones out of the bigger bedding areas and usually they'll be bedding off to the side of a bedding area where you know a lot of does are bedding and it usually works out like that but this area where i usually do a lot of hunting there's actually a doe bedding area that's kind of like horseshoe shape and what i ended up finding is the bigger bucks are bedding up to it'd be just west of the does but on a top of a ridge where there's kind of like a bowl where it gets to the top of the ridge and then it levels out and there's kind of like a little bowl and it starts to get really thick up in there actually and that's there was a trail there's a mainer there's like a major trail going into that bedding area where it's the horseshoe shape with the does i've seen small bucks come out of there i've never seen a bigger buck come out of there besides during the rut and i figured out that there was a smaller trail going up to the ridge and kind of off to the left of this doe bedding area on the west side i moved my trail cameras up into there and i ended up picking up the big eight point that i was trying to kill the year i killed the big nine and I kind of figured out he was bedding into that area on October 1st. I was able to get on him, but as you know, it was, he decided to move a little late that day and it was just getting dark and he came out of that bedding area and I had like a 50 yard shot and I just wasn't going to try to make that far of a shot in that dark conditions. Gotcha. Yeah. So once you found that bedding area, I mean, are you pushing right up into it or are you trying to, you know, basically kind of catch him in that transition on that main or on that trail that he seems to be using um i try to like push in as close as i can that the wind will allow me and like uh you know each day is gonna have like a different noise level almost in the woods like if it's a really quiet day i don't try to push in as close but if it's like a day the wind's blowing the weaves are making a lot of noise i'll try to push right into uh basically within 150 yards of where i think he's living to 100 yards of where he's living and try to either get set up on the ground or try to get set up in the air and get on a tree and get within that close distance of him because I want to try to catch him as soon as he gets out of his bed and starts to decide to move around and start heading towards a feeding pattern still in that first part of October. Yeah, I'm always curious because, you know, I've never really, I have never really, you know, come across an area where I was dead set that there was a buck, you know, in a bedding area or in the, using the, utilizing a certain bedding area. Now, that's probably mainly because I don't run trail cameras out on the public land at all yet. You know, I've kind of been wishy-washy on the idea of, you know, taking cameras out there. Um, so I'm, I'm usually, like, I can find a sign and I can tell that, yep, there's a, you know, a buck bedding area. But I don't know, you know, what buck's using it, how often it's being used. Uh, so I really don't have good intel with that. So I'm always, you know, really curious about guys that, 
you know, do have that better intel of, you know, how close do they push into that, to that bedding area to where they feel safe, that they're not buggering up, especially, uh, you know, using like a mobile setup where you're going to make some noise, you know, trying to climb up that tree with your climbing sticks or your, you know, your tree stand or saddle, you are going to have some noise and movement. So I never knew, you know, always question about how close can you get and do all that setup. And yeah, that's all going to depend. Like for me, it all depends on the deer's attitude towards like pressure and um kind of like conditions of like where you're trying to go like those were always like a smoother bark tree you know big poplars big birch trees i was climbing into so you know there's not that big flaky bark that's gonna make a crap ton of noise when you're climbing and like modding uh your climber stick so it's not you don't have a ratchet or a buckle clanking around and you know silent like uh silencing tape and doing stuff like that definitely puts a big edge on what you're trying to do and I definitely think a saddle is way quieter climbing in, trying to set up with a uh, saddle's definitely way quieter than a tree stand just because, uh, you know, most of the time tree stands, a ratchet strap where you go, but sometimes a cam buckle is what you can use. It's a little quieter, but you still got that metal noise that is going to be in the woods and stuff. And I definitely think that uh, you can get away with a good, a lot more noise than you think. But I know that for a fact that if you start clanking around some metal, the deer can definitely associate that with humans more than just a stick breaking or some bark scratching because there's more than just deer out in the woods. They know that too. So I think that as long as you're not making a bunch of clanking noises and stuff like that, I think you get away with a lot more noise than people think. I don't know. I I always have uh, high expectations that when I go into a season that you know, I've kind of picked out some areas I think bucks are bedding in and i've yet to have some success with it so i'm always curious about guys that can pull it off or and kind of pick their brain a little bit of how they approach that but but yeah i'm actually now the, oh go ahead oh no you finished what you're saying oh no i was gonna, i was going to transition because i'm kind of curious to see what you're running for your saddle and sticks and stuff like that but go ahead and finish your your thought before we change gears a little bit. i was just going to go on saying uh and every deer is different this year the deer i was chasing i had to completely change up almost completely changed my hunt uh, style to be way less aggressive because this deer i've been this is the third year i've been chasing this deer and the last year i pushed too hard and spooked him and never got another chance at him the rest of the year so i came into this year knowing i'm like i can't be as aggressive i gotta just be patient hang back a little bit more and get on his scrapes and just try to wait him out almost which is completely what i don't like to do i'm a very i like to be a very aggressive hunter i feel like especially trying to hunt public land i feel like the the best thing i can do is just be aggressive get in there and try to get it done if i bust them i bust them but i'm going to do the best i can just to get a shot before i bust them so that i guess brings up another question again before i switch gears then now are you so it sounds like you've got some history with some of these deer but are you primarily just relying on the trail cameras or are you doing like observation sits or kind of watch them in the off season too so you can kind of learn their personalities a little bit um i do rely on trail cams a lot but at the same time i go off of like a lot of like most of the deer i have there's only been one buck of the bigger deer i've killed that i don't have any history with and i kind of go off of like uh i do a crap ton of truck scouting you know driving down driving down a bunch of roads going through down every road on a section and just glassing everything i can i'm able to pick up deer kind of see where they're hanging out where they're coming in and out of and being able to kind of pick out where i think they could be living and it makes it easier to pick apart an area and just taking a deer and just using trail cams you can learn a lot but at the same time it starts i it starts to become a handicap because when i was younger i'd rely just completely on uh trail cams and it's so hard to actually know what a deer is going to be doing with just one picture or one video. And I definitely think that my, uh, starting to go around with my truck and do a lot more on the ground scouting all summer long. And then even like right now I'm doing a lot of, uh, late season scouting. Cause you know, the bigger bucks are way more visible after season ends when they're trying to get on that food and build themselves back up. And it can kind of get you to where you can see, you know, all this deer's hanging out here in the wintertime if i have to wait till late season or you know get closer to rut may or at uh, post rut or something like that i can get in this area and i know this deer might be back in this area because just depending on the food source the food source is the same he's probably gonna be back in this area he's gonna i'm gonna get a good chance to get a shot at him late season yep 
I agree with you there. Like, like I'm, I've already even when it was still the season, I uh, I basically took advantage of fresh snow and walked a, a new property that I hadn't set foot on before, and yeah, I kind of still hunted and did some tracking, and yeah, pretty much scouted out that whole property on the fly. You know, even when it was just late season still. So I feel like I'm feeling optimistic that I've already got a good jump start on scouting, having you know found another property already. But uh, yeah, that scouting, man, that is super important. If you wanna, if you wanna try to be consistent, especially getting on some deer, especially on public land side, then you need to be in love with scouting. Yep, but uh, one day scouting is worth more than two days of hunting. So that's how I live my hunting life by. Yeah, that's a good that's a good one to keep for sure. But yeah, so let's let's dive into what you're running though for gear because I'm really curious about that too. Because yeah, last. This last season was my first season with a, a saddle as well, and I I fell in love with it. So, oh uh, yeah, um, I used to run a Helium Hawk uh, tree stand, then I ended up switching to uh, the Helium Hawk saddle. I run the three bigger double sticks on the Heliums, and I mean honestly, they're not the most expensive sticks, but at the same time, I'm kind of a cheapskate when it comes to that kind of stuff. And if it works, it works, and it's quiet and i've never had any issues with it and i absolutely love them they're so quick to set up and i ended up switching the cam buckles to more of like a uh like a sailor's knot style kind of setup to where i'm just using a rope where you get around the tree yep. wrap it around a few times get a halfway decent knot and tighten the rope up and just start climbing up and because uh the problem i had with the cam buckles was trying to get them around the tree and getting them tight they were quiet unless you were like trying to get around the tree and you clinked it against a tree or you're not paying attention and you clank them against your sticks on the way in and sometimes it can just be an absolute nightmare with them cam buckles yeah it was spring last year i had purchased uh uh an xop tree stand and got their sticks and you know i basically took it out back and tried hanging it a few times with the sticks and whatnot and i honestly like for me, it just felt like yeah, I'm still carrying a tree stand now. It's a little bit lighter than you know the more permanent steel tree stands, but it's still a pain in the butt to try to climb up the tree and get it set up, and it just. So that's why I ended up pulling the trigger on going with a saddle, and pretty much immediately I changed out the straps with the buckles for a rope, and did more like that a rope mod style onto the the button, and yeah, this basically kind of cinch that rope down on itself and tie it off and yeah it worked out great yeah and the one thing i hate about they're trying to make them light but the one thing i hate about these mobile stands is how small the actual platform is like i i shoot a traditional bow so when i'm trying to pull back my recurve it, it kind of can get a little sketchy or if you're not running like a good harness or something even when i have my harness on it's still not like i'm still not fully comfortable you know you're trying to stand there and trying to draw back and stuff and sometimes you do got to move around because you got uh, like a 60 inch bow up in the tree with you and it's definitely something that made me switch to the saddle because i've never felt more comfortable in a tree than with the saddle yeah much lighter going in so you're you're definitely carrying less coming in and then yeah i mean you're basically wearing it wearing it in like especially with you know hanging hunts and whatnot like i still use the alignment belt anyway so i was you know attached to the tree so just throwing on the the tether line you know really easy so yeah i i i absolutely loved it and yeah no issue with comfort like i even when i first bought it, i bought one of like the like a back strap that came with like the kit and everything like that thinking like because i don't have the best back anymore so i figure you know i might need that and not once did I have to pull that back strap out for you know easing up any pain on my back or basically just you know worried about comfort wise. It was never an issue. Yeah, and that's what I that's what I absolutely love about the saddles. I can't believe that they never caught on back in like the eighties and nineties when they first came out. It's, to me, it's just like I just it's really hard to like wrap my head around that people actually hated them. But yeah. I guess like the whole concept around hunting was definitely way different back then than it is today. Yeah, and I'm sure like I. I know a, a guy or two that you know have been hunt or sell hunting for years, and you know I've never seen really what they used to run back in the day. But they're like, yeah, the stuff that's come out now far superior in quality and comfort, and so I'm sure it had something to do with just the the technology has come along, where it's 
you know, a lot better type of equipment. You know, same thing has happened with the tree stands, especially for the mobile setups and whatnot. So a lot more people are doing it. So, but yeah, I, I uh, ended up going with the the Latitude Outdoors, uh, their classic, you know, one piece saddle. So I was uh, I was pretty happy with it because uh, yeah, I was looking at different options and I don't know. I'm kind of I've been trying to put more emphasis on sticking with you know, either Michigan made products or, you know, made in the USA type stuff. And it's not the easiest, but with the latitude, they're, those guys are out of Grand Rapids and they make a good product. So I was really happy with it. The other thing I will say though, you are definitely on point with, uh, the, the double stick or the double step sticks. Uh, the ones I've got are just the single step. And I already know for this next year, I'm going to get some different ones that are the, the dual step when i decided to get them instead of just a single step i just do you remember like uh have you ever used like it's a it's like a one single set of climbing sticks but they're like 20 feet tall yeah yep and it's like a transition step every each each way yep and i remember it being such a pain in the ass when i was trying to climb up and climb down one of them especially in the dark and like if you don't do it right where it's like sometimes there's like a double right or a double left because you did it backwards or something or mixed up which one's the supposed to be where and yep and then you get to the top and you're stepping off off the wrong foot onto the the tree stand platform or something like that yeah 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 so that's one thing that's like yeah if i if i would recommend that you know someone's going with the mobile step like yeah go with a double step um it's so much easier than trying to figure out the steps properly for those single steps but yeah so how long have you been sticking with the recurve then um this was actually i did a little bit of late season last year with the recurve this is my first year completely just going balls to the wall with the recurve and i ended up the first part of bow season which i'm kind of glad i didn't kill the buck i was chasing till right before rifle season because this spring i ended up going to last winter i ended up going to a lot heavier recurve and then this spring i ended up pinching a nerve in my shoulder from shooting the heavier bow and so during the first like a week before season i pinched the nerve and i couldn't actually shoot my recurve till the first part of november so as soon as i could start shooting my recurve again i picked it up and shot it every night till i was comfortable out to you know 20 25 yards again and that first night was the night i ended up actually killing the buck i was chasing when the first night i took the recurve out for the year so i ended up being out working out perfect and i was definitely completely ecstatic it was the first buck i ever killed with a recurve and probably be the biggest one i'll ever kill because he's definitely up there in size yeah i was looking at those pictures and yeah that was what that was one thing i saw too was like i was looking at you know just the size of the buck and like man and now i'm looking more closely at the picture like he got that with a recurve like gosh dang it but yeah no that's uh that's a nice buck so any idea of how old he was or i guess kind of give an idea of what his if you knew what his score was or kind of describe his rack so Anyone listening can kind of yep, get an idea he, of what he looked like. He ended up, uh, we knew he was five years old because I've, I actually have two years before of sheds before I killed him. And my rattling antlers that I actually, I turned his uh, sheds from when he was three and a half into rattling antlers. And then I have his sheds from when he was four and a half. And we're like, we're 90% sure he was five and a half this year. I sent his teeth in to get aged. And he ended up scoring 194 Jeez. and run 94 and a half right on the mark. He, his uh, G3 on the one side was about 15 inches. Um, that's the tallest time. He only he only ended up having a 16 and a half inside inside spread. And but overall, he's just he had 177 and a half inches of total bone on his head without the inside spread. And he's just he was an absolute slob. And I just he was way bigger than I ever thought because when I was always telling my buddies and showing them pictures, I'm like they're like, oh, he's 190, 200, and I'm like, no, there's no way he's he's max 170s and my buddy was he said he was over 200 and he was off by six inches and he was pretty proud of himself that he guessed it at 200 and he ended up going 194 i thought he was in the low 170s and that that's insane just like if i i wouldn't even have known how to guess how how big that rack was because i've never even never even you know really seen that many even pictures of yeah he, that's insane he's uh the last few years i've been pretty lucky on killing some some mega giant deer here in michigan um he's definitely he's the biggest by 
like over 20 inches. But uh, the year before that, I was able to harvest a mainframe 12. He ended up going 173. And then the year before that, that big nine, he ended up going 160 right on the dot and some change. That That's impressive. To be able to consistently be on deer of that caliber, you definitely, you're definitely doing something right, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, and I actually ended up having to pass a super old deer, and I regret completely passing him. I'm like, I should have just shot that deer and passed this deer, Crab Claw, the one I ended up killing this year. He was a super old deer. He was way older than I thought. And it wasn't until I, I never had any good trail cam pictures of him. Every time I see him in person, he was only about, I had him at 30 yards twice and I seen him a bunch of times. And he, I ended up passing on him a couple times because he just wasn't crab claw. And he was a deer that showed up this year. I had no history with. He, I actually have one of his sheds already because he ended up for some reason dropping him right at the beginning of, uh, I was going to go in there and hunt him the last week and I had off for uh, bow season right before, right after Christmas. And he ended up dropping his antlers right before Christmas there. And I was to say I was devastated is a little bit of an understatement because he's one of them deer that you're like, man, he's a super old deer and you don't know if he's going to make it through the year. You definitely know he's going to shrink a little bit, but he definitely had a bunch of stuff going on and actually seen him pretty. I almost got him during muzzleloader season, but I just couldn't get a clear shot through some brush and just didn't work out to kill him this year. But next year, if he's still around and still alive, hopefully I can try to figure him out a little more and get back on him yeah that's awesome that you got you that you've been able to you know, build up such a history with these deer and i guess i don't know like are there very many deer you know higher caliber deer in your area or are you just really fortunate being able to you know get on them and whatnot i would say there's not very like we're not an above average area we're still you know northern michigan a lot of public land huge orange army area and i would say that we're about average for deer size here you know but you know as always for like the last probably forever now well i'd say at least you know everybody used to shoot big bucks in the 40s and 50s i think you know even back in like the i'm trying to think my dad talked about the 90s and stuff you'd always have like you know the mega giants around but nobody ever killed them because like there was no trail cams. Nobody knew they existed. Everybody just heard them as a rumor. Yeah. Or if they did exist, they got poached. Or people, if people seen them a lot, they got poached. And yeah. I think nowadays you just don't have them getting poached, and you don't have them. Uh, people are seeing more of them, as seeing bigger deer, so the little deer are getting passed. But there's definitely not a lot of them around. But there's definitely, you know, there's always one or two a year, and I've just been fortunate enough to get on them. And I whitetail is all I do. Like people talk about, they like the deer hunt and. Well, I don't. I don't just like the deer hunt. I live for deer hunting. That's all I do all year round. Yep. Yeah, I I transitioned into that probably a couple of years back, where it was like, you know, I'd start getting excited. You know, when it came to like starting to do food plots, and you know, at that point, I'd really, really start shooting my bow, and you know, start diving into the whitetail con- content again and watching videos, and then, you know, that next year you start a few months sooner. And then, you know, last year I really started just like every day. It was some type of hunting video or listening to a podcast about whitetail hunting or, you know, something. Just absorbing whitetail hunting is now a, a daily occurrence for me. So I'm with you there. It's you, you, you can get off on the deep end and make it a make it a obsession pretty, pretty easily. Yeah, and I... I mean, it's a way better addiction than gambling or alcohol or drugs, so I don't know what people would complain about. If you ask my wife, it's like, holy crap, sometimes it's a little overwhelming for her. Uh-huh. Because, like, anymore, I'll be like, you want to go for a drive? And she'll be like, ah, you can go by yourself because, like, I know exactly what you're going to do. You're going to drive around <laughs> every 15, 5, 10 minutes. You're going to be stopping and trying to stare at deer for 10 minutes or so while you look at them. She's like, you can go by yourself. Sometimes she will if it's nicer out. But like when it's cold like this, and I want to stop and stare at deer for ten minutes, she's she just lets me go on my own now. Yeah, she knows that a, a drive or a walk is a scouting mission. Yep. <laughs> yep, I'm with you there. Yeah. But all right, man. Well, that's awesome that you've been able to find success and have found a strategy that works for you, and that you've definitely, you know, have found some success. 
um, and consistency can set, which is no uh, no short feet for sure. I don't know, man. I'm just I'm still trying to absorb everything that laying on me here about the success you found, and I'm very impressed. I'm I, very I, impressed, sir. That's for a Michigan. You know, again, still more or less. You're still northern Michigan. You know, you're not down that southern Michigan, closer to you know that Illinois Indiana border. And the fact that you're able to find these caliber deer consistently, I mean, that's no small feat. So, I mean, I know. Where are you going there? I was just gonna say, like for me, like I've been feeling like I'm pretty, pretty well uh, entrenched in Whitetail, and I'm still, I'm still trying to find my success and you know consistency with it. You know, I feel like I'm getting closer with it, but. I still got a lot to learn, so, but man, it, it's well, it's fun to listen to hearing another Michigan guy saying, you know, finding that success. So, it's great to hear. I wish I could, <laughs> I wish I could say it was all skill, but you, as you know, deer hunting, it's way more luck than it is skill. But I definitely, I'm gonna keep taking the luck as it comes to me. So, yep. Oh yeah, I I try to remember who said it, but it was like, luck is preparation meets opportunity. Yeah, like it's not just all chance. Like you, you put in your work, and then you get that little bit of luck to, you know, tie it all together. Like I even just had a conversation with my dad, where he's like, "Yeah, he's like, even if you do everything right, like those deer still have to make the mistake." Oh yeah, and especially deer in Michigan here. If they've survived, you know, they get to that three years old and get a little older than that, they've they've survived some they've survived some shit. Especially you know that rifle season time frame and even bow season there's there's so many hunters here in michigan that deer are so well educated when it comes to them getting that three years old and there's even like from a year and a half to two and a half the deer are completely different mindsets and then once the deer leaves that two and a half year old age group and hits that three and a half they become a completely different animal and it's honestly pretty cool to be able to battle minds with older deer and it's something that i don't think i'll ever get tired of and I just hope that as long as I can keep finding mature bucks, I'll be able to keep doing it. I'm never going to get super picky. If I get a year where I'm getting a little down on my luck and not be able to find bigger deer, I'm not. I'm not against taking a three or half, three and a half year old deer because I don't care where you are in Michigan. Three and a half year old deer is still a nice deer. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I find myself too. Like I think about like you know what? I I just like shooting that deer too much to you know not you know not always be like if as long as I that deer gets my heart raising like they're probably gonna get some lead thrown at them or an arrow or something because yeah i just love hunting them so that's for sure yep definitely that's if you don't have the if you don't have the drive and you don't get that excited over deer what are you really doing out there yeah yeah i agree with that all right man well there was one other thing i really wanted to talk to or touch base with you about was about your business and kind of you know kind of what your approach is when you are designing a property or kind of what you know kind of what what's your foundation to where yeah um what what i look for on a property and what my like foundation is is uh first thing first is water you gotta have water or water nearby without water you can't hold no deer that's like the first basic thing of life is water second is you don't have to have the food on you the food's not as important as good cover because there's always a good chance your neighbors got food but the main thing I would look for, I always look for when I'm, the first thing I look for when I'm walking a property and going over a property with a client is I got to make sure they have decent food. Decent, they have to have water within that good distance and good clean water, not just like some cesspool pond. Because even deer will get picky, not unless they're absolutely needing that water, they're not going to be drinking out of a cesspool. They're going to want that clean water. And after you got like, you know, your clean water set up, like, if they have no water, I'll talk to them about digging frog ponds. You know, dig multiple frog ponds, try to find a spring, you know, something that's not going to cost an arm and leg, like digging a whole spring-fed pond or something. Or even just, you know, hauling water into, like, little stock tanks and filling up stock tanks or something like that. But, you know, the first thing I always look for is just straight up make sure you got water. And then after that, make sure you got decent cover. You can take a property that's complete garbage and turn it into an awesome property by just adding cover giving the deer somewhere to live and i think i see a lot of people make a mistake of they see like a cedar swamp 
and they see all this canopy on top and they think that the deer like that deer aren't hiding from predators that are coming from above they're coming from they're hiding from predators that are on a ground level so definitely way more than canopy is a side cover you know if you get into a property i don't really recommend it because hinge cutting does kill the trees after a while i do like i do push planting actually like planting briars and trying to do more of like a tci man like a timber stand management to create thicker cover you know clear out some trees instead of hinge cutting the trees because after you know you get three or four years out of them they're gonna be dead so take them trees right out get the grass growing in some areas get some briars growing get some thick cover growing just give them deer some place to live and try to create to have I'll, I'll try to go over a plan with them to try to create just all year round not just because you know as grass gets towards the winter and stuff it starts to flatten out and deer no longer want to use that as cover and then after you get the cold cover thing situation you come to food and with being able to control where your bedding area is and where your food is if you know where they're living and you know where they're you know where they're bedding and you know where they're going to be going to eat you can usually have a good chance to kill that deer you're going to see a lot more deer and you're going to be able to see a lot more of the age quality deer that you want to see because you have a little more control over deer movement but after you get that done it's kind of more of like situational of like trying to set up blinds and stuff and just trying to help them pick out an area like you got to go off like how they're going to hunt you can't and i i'm guilty of this it's hard to sometimes it can be hard to like overthink it's pretty easy to overthink the whole hunting blind situation you just got to know how that hunter's style is because like where you put the you got to think of easy access really good exits because especially on a food source the exits are way more important than the access of trying to get into them situations because if them deer are already on the food and you don't have good uh, exit out of that spot you're going to blow that spot out within a couple sets and then all that work and money you put into that food source is kind of useless because then the deer just start showing up straight at night yep now i do want to go all the way back to where you started that that you said that water is one of your higher priorities now that's really interesting because out of all the people i've listened to that talk about you know land management and you know wait till have improvement i don't think i've ever heard someone say that water was one of their top priorities you know usually you hear the typical is either food or the cover and they you know interchange you know one and two on that priority list so you're actually one of the first people I've ever heard that really talked about water being part of their staple. And then, you know, I wasn't too surprised that you said that cover and especially having like side cover and whatnot, you know, what's that next major thing. So that's really interesting that that's, that you see that that water is that big of a, you know, a draw or uh, important onto a property. Yeah, and water's definitely very situational depending on the property because, like, you know, you get properties, you got a river or a creek running through. They have, they're going to have open water all year round. Yep. But say, like, uh, you get towards hunting season, you know, hunting season can get a little colder if you just have these couple ponds and stuff and you don't have water that's going to stay open. And you think, say, in the summertime when it's dry and stuff, you don't have any water. Deer have to, deer need water to live. And, that's way more important deer can survive way longer without food than they can water so i feel like when i come into a situation my main thing is like what's your water source like because like number one thing a deer needs is water because no matter they can they'll travel miles for food but i don't they can they can travel miles for water too but the water is going to be something that they're going to want to stay closer to because they need water way more than and way more often than they need food so let me ask you this then if someone has a property and they don't have, you know, a, you know, a water source or some type of water source running through their property, you know, how far away are you looking to see where's the closest water before you uh, recommend that they need to put in some type of water source? Um, it depends on what kind of time frame they want to hunt. Like, say these guys are wanting to hunt just the first part of October and stuff when it's warmer. I would say you want to have a water – if your neighbors have a water source, you want to be within, you know, 500 yards of a water source. Okay. As winter rolls in and they do have a little bit of snow they can eat, and that's not that's, – that's not, like, good water source for the deer because they burn way more energy trying to turn that snow into water than they would just drinking regular water. But – it's it's all depends on the situation too because uh 
it depends on like your climate and stuff but you know north here in michigan you're going to want to stay within 500 yards of water source and there's a lot of there's one thing that i've learned that a lot of people don't actually pay attention to when they're doing like i know they're illegal here in michigan but you know a ton of people still do them is mineral sites and i've noticed a lot of people don't realize that your mineral site is not going to be as effective if it's not within 150 yards of water as it would be if it was within 150 yards of water because when you eat popcorn or eat something super salty, what do you want to do? You want to drink some water. You know what I mean? Right. Makes sense. So when it comes right down to like the trying to get your deer to consume as much mineral to get as much, like get as much stuff that they need in their body as they can, you're going to want to closer to water because they're more likely to eat some of it, go get some water and then come right back and eat more. And that's going to make your deer herd way healthier overall. You're going to have healthier fawns. Because a buck's, no matter how much nutrition you give that deer, the deer antler size is going to be completely set when he's a fetus in his mom. And making sure that you have proper nutrition and mineral within close enough water source so they're eating enough mineral and taking enough in is going to be very important if you want to grow bigger deer. Now, it's a long time thing that is not just going to change like mineral can help a deer get bigger the next year but focusing on the does and stuff is something that's more of like a four or five year plan because you're going to see a huge increase in your deer's antler size by just focusing on making sure your nutrition's right for them does because if a doe is struggling while that buck fawn is in utero he's going to be set so far back when he is growing because like his first five years are already preset and how big he's going to get. He's never going to hit full potential. He's never going to amount to much of anything. If the doe is like, say she start almost starves to death, but then she makes it through and then she drops a fawn and that fawn's going to be so far behind compared to a deer that the doe had a great health, came went into winter, great health, came out of winter in great health and dropped that fawn and fed it through. And that, that deer's going to, that buck will probably be, you know, 20, 30 inches bigger than, the buck that came from a mom that barely survived winter just hadn't shitty nutrition. And I mean, you see that a lot with like uh, deer in the big woods compared to deer in farmland, there's a huge antler difference and that's all comes from nutrition. And uh, a lot of that is controlled in utero by the does. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember who did that research project, but they took those, the bucks from, uh, I think it was the Black Hills they took them from, and then I think they took them from the other part of South Dakota. And yeah, they they showed that that yeah, it's nutrition. Yeah. Like taking two bucks from that were born in different areas, you give them the same nutrition, you'll see that you know that naturally smaller you know Black Hills deer actually grew in size quite similar to the one that was born somewhere else. But then yeah, they took it that next step and looked at you know if the mother was healthy and had good nutrition, then that you know, exponentially almost grew, you know, that buck's potential uh, once he was born. So, yeah, yep. that, that's... Yeah, it increased his body size, and he was in the same antler size and antler class as the deer that came from good nutrition areas. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. When I when I listened to... I forget who, where I first heard it, but, yeah, I looked into that research project. I mean, that was eye-opening of, you know, things about what you should focus on when it came to nutrition and, you know, getting you know nutrition to deer and whatnot what what really is the most important aspect of that yep and a lot of people need to realize nutrition is not a one-year fix granted you're going to have way better deer the following year your bucks are going to have reach more of their potential but it's the nutrition thing's a long time program that's going to take you you know four or five years before you start seeing a huge difference in your deer size Yep. but if you can keep the nutrition there and try to you know grow bigger deer you're gonna see a big difference but at the same time it's you're gonna be also relying on your neighbors doing the same kind of your neighbors having the same kind of level of nutrition as you do as those does because when a buck you know hits that starts getting to a yearling age he comes in that first spring as a yearling he's gonna get chased he's gonna get pushed off by his mom so at the same time you putting all this energy and stuff into your doe nutrition you're kind of you're helping the area, but sometimes you could also just be helping somebody a mile away or something. But at the same time, you're hoping that that neighbor 
that that guy that's a mile away that's helping trying to do that nutrition too is going to have the same effect towards you and granted them bucks probably will come back and not all of them are going to get chased away that far or get chased away by their moms but there's a good chance a lot of bucks will but then you're also relying on your uh, other people doing the same kind of nutritional aspect as you are but you will see a bigger increase in your deer every year with focusing on proper nutrition for your deer even if you know the deer the does that where your bucks are coming from are not getting the same uh nutrition when those bucks are in utero yeah yeah and that's that's one thing that i transitioned from you know when i first started doing food plots and you know start thinking about habitat improvement like my first goal was to you know increase my odds of success and now that i've done it for a few years you know i have made that transition where yeah i'm i'm concerned about you know the overall health of the deer herd and the individual deer and yeah, trying to, you know, utilize the best practices that's going to be most benefit to them as well as other game. You know, it's kind of, I kind of, you know, thought of it as like gone from a hunter to now more, you know, concerned about the conservation side of. You have more of a land steward. Yeah. Yep. You got it. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's funny how I, you know, it's not that far to make that transition um, once you get started, you know, doing, you know, habitat improvement and stuff like that. So. Yep, hunters are the biggest conservationists, and they always will be. Yep, agreed. All right, man. Well, we've been on the phone now for about an hour, and I sure I gotta get back up and well. It's yep, basically and I my... better get back to packing this gear up to hopefully find some, get on the elk tomorrow. Maybe find some old dropped ones. Probably not with all the snow up by you guys, but I'm definitely gonna give it a shot and at least try to find some elk to get on some elk sheds later this spring. Yeah, and you know, I guess I want to back up a little bit because. Where did you go on your trip that you said you went on? Um, I ended up going out to Montana oh. around the Red Lodge, uh, just south of Billings. You got you got Red Lodge. Oh, what town? What town was the main one we were in? Red Lodge was the town we hunted around a lot. And then, uh, Jesus, I don't know why I can't remember the town we hunted around. It was t- another town we spent a few days around hunting. And trip was a blast. I went out with some friends and stuff. We were chasing some elk and mule deer. And I ended up not shooting a mule deer, but I ended up. I got I leveled down on a few nice ones and just never pulled the trigger. Seen a really couple really nice white tail and you know, just never saw anything that caught my eye and by the time I was done the trip was over. <laughs> so that's just how it goes sometimes. Hunting's not about killing, it's about being there and experiencing it. Yeah. Yeah, especially being able to go out into a different part of the country. So yeah. I I took my trip out to South Dakota and I had an absolute blast out there, so yeah, I get that. Yeah, there's a lot of nice deer out there. There are, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah. From coming from Michigan, hunting hard, it was really fun going out there, just seeing so many game animals and really just, yeah, just seeing animals the whole trip. It was awesome. Hopefully, my spring trip to Texas this year will be a little bit better than the Montana trip. I mean, we had a blast in Montana, but I definitely like killing stuff at the same time, too. Yeah. And what are you going to be doing down in Texas? Um, I'm going down there to chase a really nice axis buck. I've shot, I'm, I'm hopefully to chase a nice one. I'm going to be going down there right before the rut because I want to try to kill one in velvet. I've actually, I've killed a few axis deer before and, you know, one really nice one, but I've never killed an absolute slob and I really want to kill a nice one in velvet. So I'm going down there to hunt some free range axis in South Texas and crossing my fingers, I come across one, a really nice one in velvet. But if there's one that's hard horned, I'm not going to pass up a giant and, <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely gonna be a lot more picky than I usually will be, but yeah. I'm gonna stay down there till I get it done. And hopefully, it doesn't take more than a you know three or four days. Nice man. All right, but so before I let you go though, so for I want to give you a little chance to plug your business a little bit. So and we I guess we never really discussed on kind of the area that you cover or you know how far you're willing to travel. So go ahead and uh, yeah, I pretty much uh, I'm based uh northern uh northern whitetail habitat and hunting solutions uh. I'm on Facebook at uh, Northern Whitetail Habitat. Um, I pretty much cover all of Northern Michigan. I will go into Southern Michigan and into the UP. I've had a few people try to get me going on to Ohio, but as, as you guys know, time is kind of something that's important in business. And sometimes I just don't have the time and I just don't, I just have not been able to take on clients that far away yet. But definitely as this grows more and more, I'll definitely focus on trying to get into that Northern Ohio northern indiana and even into wisconsin area nice man all right man well unless there's anything else you guys wanted to cover i think i think we had a good conversation here man 
Yeah, it was awesome. I appreciate you letting me come on and talk. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, it's not that much of a stretch. I mean, anytime anyone wants to talk hunting or hunting-related stuff, I'm I'm on board with it. So, no, man, I really enjoyed uh, talking with you. I'm glad you reached out. And I guess uh, we'll have to definitely keep in touch, though, and I'll definitely uh, be following along with and keep an eye on some of your adventures and what you got going on for sure. And I'd love to have you back on sometime. Yeah, I'll definitely, I'll definitely come back on. Just let me know when you want me on. All right, sounds good, man. All right, that's it for this episode. Again, man, what a, what, what a fun episode. Again, I learned quite a bit from from Derek uh, and just talking to him, giving some other perspectives. Always good to kind of hear what other hunters are doing and how they approach things because you can always try to apply it to your situations and try to learn from it as well and then he did bring up a really interesting point about you know he prioritizes water quite a bit on his hunt hunt properties where you know something that usually kind of takes third chair for a lot of times i think where people focus on food or cover and you know kind of forget about that water aspect um quite frequently so even when it comes to you know, public land hunting or where you can, you know, you start looking at some of the areas where you're finding either a good food source or a good cover area where you see good sign. I think I'm going to do from now on is kind of take a look and see how close the nearest water source is um, and see if that plays into a factor of how I approach a, a hunting situation. So yeah, so especially if you're wanting to get some opinions or someone to take a look at a hunting property for you. Certainly take a look at what Derek has to offer um, and with his expertise. So, so that's one thing when you dive into a, you know, want to do some habitat work, you know, sometimes it can be kind of tough to decide exactly what you should do and have the confidence to pull the trigger on some of your projects where bringing in someone that's got some more experience or um, has seen you know, other properties, someone like a land manager then you know just getting a, a second opinion even sometimes or even just running through with them and letting them take a look at your property make sure that what you've got planned for the property makes sense um, in their eyes as well just kind of give that reassurance that you know the work that you're doing on your habitat is going to give you the outcomes or or have the the effect that you're hoping it does so and with it being time where people are start coming up with their plan for their hunting properties and the habitat improvements that they're going to make for the upcoming season, you know, now's a good time to get your ducks in a row and get that plan in place. But again, that's a wrap on this episode. So until next time, again, get out there, be safe, and have fun.